Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Hey, Jordan Harbinger here. Subscribe to the only show that will show you how to apply the world's greatest ideas from the most striking minds. After presenting more than a thousand interviews, I couldn't be more compelled to introduce you to the Jordan Harbinger Show. We've got spies and CEOs, athletes and authors from Kobe Bryant to Malcolm Gladwell, Tony Hawk and Howie Mandel to the chairman of Google, founders of LinkedIn and Instagram, antiquities smugglers, con men, brilliant scientists, national heroes, and even the head of the CIA. Listed as Apple's best of 2018 and countless other awards that, let's be honest, you probably don't care about right now. So come and have a listen for yourself and join me as we exploit the superpowers of the world's most incredible thinkers, amazing achievers, and iconic change makers with their insights delivered right into your mind. You'll get that blueprint of their brilliance each week so that you can learn to live what you listen. Subscribe right now to The Jordan Harbinger Show, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you're listening now. Napa know-how. This month, Napa's got all kinds of motor oil deals that can save you some serious cash, like a five-quart jug of Napa Full Synthetic Motor Oil for just $16.49. With savings like that, you may start feeling like a VIP, but don't let it go to your head. These oil deals are for everyone. Quality parts, helpful people. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how. General states pricing. Sales prices not include applicable state local taxes or recycling fees. Offer ends 831 You break into the business. I I just drove out to Los Angeles, and I my dad, who was a doctor, knew one guy who was a um, he he his his son both were trying to be in the film business. One was very successful and ran a production company called Propaganda, which was like the biggest commercial production company at the time. It broke Fincher and Michael Bay and all these other big directors at the time. Uh, and I couldn't get to him because he was too big time. But his younger brother, who was trying to write screenplays, I had lunch with him. He took me to the propaganda office, said, this guy's making a music video tomorrow. You want to work on it? I said, sure. I'll be on it for free. It was Antoine Fuqua. It was an wow. Al B. Shore video at Vasquez Rocks. And I drove film back and forth. And I hassled the film department the whole time to say, hey, can I learn how to load, blah, blah, blah. And just on a Sunday night, they called me up and said, we lost our loader. We'll teach you how to load today if you come by and started me on a film. And I started as a camera assistant, and I just kept going. So you, you become a DP, and, and I feel like Garden State was kind of like your breakout film. And then you, you go on to, to do a, a string of comedies, and then eventually, which leads you to The Hangover. So, so tell me how you first met up with Todd Phillips and, and started that working relationship. Yeah, I mean... Obviously, this is my sixth film with Todd, so it's the biggest and most important collaboration of, of my career, and, and it's really been fruitful, I think, obviously, for both of us. Garden State, yeah, it was formative simply because it was finally a movie that people had seen. You know, you, you're sort of finding steps along your way in your career. First, can you get employed? One of my first people I made a movie with is in the house tonight, this guy Marco Farnioli, who... Literally, like, when I went and made a movie in Ohio, he was my camera assistant, and we have been friends ever since. And, and he was on the first thing I ever got, which was like, oh, now they'll pay you to shoot something, which was like a shitty B movie. That's a first step. Then it's like a 
maybe a movie your parents have heard of. And then second, third step is like maybe a movie that people have seen, and that was Garden State. So that gave me opportunities to maybe get a studio film or two. And I had done a film with a director named Steve Conrad uh, called Promotion, which was not really seen by a lot of people, but but he's an amazing writer. He knew Todd, recommended me to Todd, because Todd was looking for a DP for Hangover. And that was it. It was just a recommendation of a friend. So Todd comes to you and he says, I'm going to make a Joker movie and it's going to star Joaquin Phoenix. What is your first impression of that? I, I, I mean, did, did, were you as sort of shocked as the rest of film Twitter, so to speak? Not, not as shocked as, as probably most because as anyone who's worked with Todd knows, he's, he actually, there's a lot of darkness inside of him and his interests in characters and stuff like that. So when he described, and you know, even if you look at the darkness from like Hangover, which is when I started with Todd, to Hangover Three, to Due Date, to War Dogs, to to now Joker, there's a progression that actually is it leads you in this direction, even if it doesn't seem so obvious at first. But when he said it, I thought, oh, it's brilliant because he was doing it in a really smart way, which is like it's so hard to get any movie made nowadays, particularly for theatrical in the studio system, as opposed to maybe for Netflix or Amazon. And I think he was just, could see the landscape. He's an extremely smart and pragmatic filmmaker, and as well as obviously being really good creatively. And I think he just realized he could sort of like trick Warner Brothers into making what would be a cool character movie, but if he used like the IP of Joker. So for me, I thought it was brilliant idea even before I read the script uh, when he sort of told me what the concept was and I knew at the very least we could pull off something that would be a bit subversive and cer certainly original because I knew he wasn't going to the good thing about Todd is he doesn't really sort of care he he's pragmatic in a lot of ways in the, in, in, but he also is sort of a good gambler and he's just like whatever man I don't give a shit I'd rather take a big swing and miss than just try to go down the middle with a single. So I knew we could take we could make a movie that could take some chances and, and at least be something that we could feel like um, you know was our own and didn't sort of play by some of the other rules. And what were your first thoughts when he said you know I'm thinking of casting Joaquin as Joker and, and, and possibly you know Robert De Niro to co-star? Well, amazing because I hadn't worked with both and I love both of them. Joaquin, we had always talked about the master. I know Todd and I both are really big fans of P.T. Anderson, and and so whether it's you know the master or even Inherent Vice, and obviously all the other stuff that I always loved her, and I think it just felt like of course it's going to be Joaquin, like that right there. The movie is so singularly about the Joker that that is the movie, and De Niro is like you know obviously whipped cream on top because you go okay great this this very important section of the movie which is really the end you're going to have this like toe to toe with uh, one of the best actors of all time and somebody I know Joaquin just admired from when he was a child you know so what are those first conversations like with Todd about what this film is going to look like I think it was like first of all it's not a comic book movie per se in the way that you might think about Marvel or other not necessarily other DC movies, but but in 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 a way of just let's let's take that out of the equation and not ever think about it on those terms. Let's more think about it as a character study and the movies we loved in the seventies and 
the fact that they were at their heart just this sort of deep dive into a human psyche and that you could feel like you were really just dissecting a person and the human condition. So let's let's draw our references more from those movies and uh, and less from something that has to be on its surface like a big studio Marvel IP movie, you know, or DC IP movie. Were there any films that you took your sort of visual inspiration from for this film? Yeah, there are, there are films that, that we talked about a little bit, but more, I think, for tone. Like, I think people always obviously look to King of Comedy, Taxi Driver, Network, of course, um, as things that are feel familiar in the movie, but part, I think, because of the subject matter and the tone. Visually, interestingly enough, I was drawing from other places as well. I remember like in my little like lookbook of like movie ideas of things that would like stick with me as like ideas. There were shots from Strange Love and strangely I got obsessed with this Killing of a Sacred Deer movie, which is uh, if you actually watch that movie, you'll feel like some of Joker in that because it, I made Todd watch it and he fucking hated it. He was like hate tweeting <laughs> me the whole time. Like, why am I watching this movie? I'm turning it off. And then five minutes later, what the fuck? Or am I still watching this movie? And then, like, I hate this. And then he, 20 minutes later, it's another. he couldn't turn it off. I was like, there's something there, the fact that you couldn't turn it off. <laughs> but so I got obsessed with the sort of the tension of that movie and the weirdness of the framing and the compositions. And, the, and I thought the lighting was really realistic but beautiful. So in a weird way that movie served as an inspiration amongst others uh you know but i feel like that movie and that's, that director the weird tension in that movie that's so interesting because i i wouldn't have guessed that but now that you say that i can see it because I, I love sacred deer i thought it was great yeah weird movie. um can you talk about some of the, the the recurring visual motifs in this film whether it's the stairs and the way Joaquin is sort of when he when he's going up the stairs, he, he's sort of feel he's like trudging up it. He feels like beaten down, and then when he's going downstairs, descending into the city, he's dancing. Some of the hallway shots in here, I feel like you make a meal out of these kinds of things. Yeah, yeah there's a lot of repetition in the movie, and 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 even the final scene is a mirror to the the other social worker scenes. If you actually watch. Same coverage, same angles, same lenses. They're meant to mirror each other for you know reasons that you can kind of interpret on your own. The stairs is such a big part of the movie. We actually looked at two tenements, like to like go. What is Arthur's world? That was like part of the early scouting. One was in Brooklyn, and it was like a series of three buildings, which was actually really cool, and it had a cool lobby where the mailbox could be and. We really battled between those two things, but I think Todd kept returning to those stairs as a representative of his neighborhood, but but and not just like the life that he lives as Arthur Fleck and how arduous it is. Because when we shot at those stairs, we never shut them down. It's like a public transit. And man, you would just see everybody start at the bottom. They'd have two loads of groceries, some 60-year-old woman living in the Bronx, and she would just do a big sigh and then just start up those stairs, just like he does in the movie. And that's their life every day. So I think that became such a great metaphor for, you know, some of the things that the movie deals with, class and, and society and how we treat each other and, you know, how we don't treat each other and treat each other as invisible. But yeah, of course, there's also the metaphor of the shadow and the darkness of, of everyone's character, certainly this character, and that we are 
are sort of constantly struggling to sort of decide which direction we're going to go and which side of ourselves we're going to embrace. And the, for Arthur, the actual harder part of him to embrace is the good part of him, the part that's hanging on. But the joyous part, the part that dances and goes downstairs, which is easier, obviously, the part that's descending into madness and chaos is actually this part that he embraces and is really his truest self. So it's like, it's you know, there are opposites to some extent. But yeah, we try to do that in a lot of places in the movie. You, you grew up in Jersey, right? Yeah, Teaneck, New Jersey. So, so did you grow up sort of pining for the city, or was it a place that you were warned about as a kid? Like no, I would go that? in at every step. I went in when I was 13, got robbed because <laughs> I was trying to buy fake IDs. It was like a slow-motion robbery. They're like, hey, what do you guys, you guys want fake IDs? We're like, yeah, yeah, fake IDs. They took me and my brother and two friends and surrounded us. And they're like, all right. And we're like, how much? They're like, how, how much you got in your pocket? And we're like, well, I don't know. How much is it? And they're like, it's like some money. Just how much you got in your pocket? And they just kept taking more money out of our pockets. And then they're like, all right, we'll see you later. And we were like, all right. Well, it was more expensive than we thought. But uh, we, we got fake IDs. And then 30 minutes went by, 45. We, t- we stopped cops. We told them. Hey, I think we just got robbed. And they went, just get the fuck back to Jersey. What are you doing here? You're not supposed to be here. But I used to go into the Bronx and watch like breakdancing video. I was I was super into breakdancing and go in and see Wild Style, which I actually referenced to this movie as well. Those like 80s, early 80s breakdancing, just to look at what the Bronx looked like back then for Bron- for like, you know, Gotham and just like the vibe of what, what it felt like, which was really the vibe of what New York City was. And it was a place to be scared of, but as a 13-year-old kid, you're just excited by it. So, right. yeah, any chance I had, I would take the bus into New York. Well, I wanted to ask about you know the, the city, because uh, watching the, that first subway scene where he shoots the, the three Wall Street guys, I love uh, the way that you play with light and the way that light sort of, the darkness sort of obscures some of what's going on in that train car. Can you talk about shooting that scene specifically? Yeah, it was a challenge, a challenging scene. That was like from a, a, a emotional and a creative standpoint, the big thing there was Todd, the, the real note he gave on that was I just want it to be like a fever dream. And we talked about a bunch of things, like just what, what would that mean, like a fever dream that would just kind of... It, it, the pressure of the kids surrounding him and, and picking on him, and then would it build to something? So I was like, obsessively, well, what could we do to kind of build that up creatively, but not make it so fantastical that it would take you out of the movie, you know, and be like total fantasy that it would stay in reality? And every time I'm in New York and I drive, I get on the subways, I just like love the way the light plays. When you go into a tunnel, when you go past stations, when the light turns off from its disconnection from the electricity. So I was like, well, we should at least have the power to do that so we could turn off the lights inside, flash bright white light from a station passing by, but have this like control. And then it was like, well, how do we do that? And it was actually quite difficult because ever since 9-11 and Homeland Security, they actually, and this is even more recent than that, five years or so, they won't let you actually shoot like plates or even shoot in the real subway more than just a couple stops, which we did in the movie. So I couldn't have a total control of the light inside the station. And then I was like, well, we could do it blue screen, but then I couldn't shoot plates. And so it was like, well, how do we do this without plates? And 
me and the, the visual effects supervisor just drove the subway one night for four or five hours taking iPhone videos of like what the light would do and thinking how we could replicate it. And so we came up with a solution in that to just take a subway train on stage and surround it with LED lights, like these big LED video screens basically that are about 12 feet away from the car and 15 feet high. And we would project on them train stations passing by but because we couldn't shoot plates we had to figure out how to get that material and so we ended up sh doing it with stills we went to train stations and we would just take a shot walk a step right take a shot walks and created these like long panoramic strips interesting right and then i could have each one on a layer so i had a layer of like a white subway station i had a sodium vapor subway station then i had like a, a layer of just like white fluorescence then a layer of like tungsten bulbs. And so while my A operator and uh, Joaquin and the actors were inside the subway car, I was over at a dimmer board and I would just watch the scene and just like, like on this layer of video, I could just pass by a, a subway station, turn off the lights inside. So I was like DJing the scene <laughs> with both like light and the, the backgrounds in like real time every take. And just would watch the scene, watch Joaquin, watch the energy of it, and then turn the lights off at a certain section, turn them back on. And so it was like it was super fun, but comp more complicated than it might seem by watching it. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. Um, so much of the pre-release conversation surrounding this movie was about, you know, the the violence and what might happen in the theater, and 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 some people sort of condemned it without seeing it. Yeah. So I'm wondering, was that frustrating to you as as one of the filmmakers? I think it was frustrating because obviously I had seen it and I thought obviously it felt a bit premature and, and unfair simply because I went, I think once people do see the movie, some of that conversation is going to go away and you're now like poisoning the well or, or just making the movie. I just, the fear was like, will people not go to it either out of fear and um, and it was palpable. Like there was a sensation that maybe something terrible was going to happen, and nobody wants anything terrible to happen in a movie, any movie. Um, but because of these sort of ideas and talk, it felt like it was raising the stakes, and so it made you anxious in the theater. I remember I actually did like a Q and A, not about Joker, but we rewatched uh, Taxi Driver at Arizona State University with Michael Chapman, the DP of that. More to talk about that movie, but because it has some influences on Joker, we were talking about it. And this was two weeks before the movie came out. So we didn't show Joker or anything. But there was like there was like an energy in the crowd that felt like it was part of that time. And it just felt, oh, man, I don't want this energy to be the energy that just... Because even my niece who was at Arizona State was like, I'm not seeing it open a weekend. It feels scary. Right. Now, obviously, people still went. In droves. So, yeah. Did they? This film grossed a billion dollars. Yeah, exactly. Did you ever think in your wildest dreams that you'd be the DP on a billion dollar movie? Well, yeah, sure. I thought Godzilla <laughs> was going to make a million. It kind of disappointed. But no, uh, yeah, that wasn't the issue. Would this movie make a billion dollars? No way, no how. Like, yeah, I thought it would make money and I thought people would be happy at Warner's and the other investors because I, th I thought it was a safe investment and nobody was going to get hurt. Uh, but I thought it would sort of max out at 300, 350, because it was challenging enough as a movie and not maybe what people expected, that it would maybe not be sort of whatever 
whatever they call like four quadrant or whatever, like a movie that can make a billion dollars, you know. And now this film is, is gunning for a Best Picture nomination, and you know there are exceptions to this, like Titanic and Return of the King. But you know some people think that box office could be a hindrance to to Best Picture because they see well, box office is the reward. You know, you guys yeah. made money. You, you know, like what? Wh- wh- where do you fall on on that? I certainly don't think it should be a hindrance. I think I mean I've seen a lot of the movies. I genuinely not having. I have a dog in the fight, so it's hard. But I do believe it's one of the best pictures of the year. Genuinely, I really do. And I think the fact that audiences embraced it... First of all, the Academy is not like eight people in a room. It's 5,000 people or so, right? It's a lot of people. And I think, to some extent, the people have spoken about this movie, not just the fact that it's grossed a billion dollars, but that they've embraced it and they've gone back to watch it multiple times. And they really... You know, I've been in Europe, and I've seen the way they love the movie, and they they, they they love it with a passion that is not just like as a piece of popcorn theater, you know? They, they really love the fact that it was original and all the things that it's different. So I feel like that's worthy of, of consideration, and um, I hope that, yeah, I think, you know, in history, history has said that, yeah, that sometimes that's a hindrance, because it's like, this is made to celebrate films. And not movies, you know what I mean. But, well, but I, I think that this is a film. I think that this stands there with with the Dark Knight and Logan as something that sort of transcends the comic book movie genre. Yeah, we hope so, and we believe it. Again, we weren't setting out to make something in the comic book genre. We were just trying to make a really amazing character study of a of a person's mind. Right. That just happens to be a comic that's book exactly character right. That's that's the brilliance of Todd's like conception. Right. It was like this is a way because it also is still a business that it's expensive and, it, and now more than ever it's hard to get people to see movies in theaters so it's like just getting movies like this that are non-traditional i mean obviously that's what the benefit of it being part of the dcip but like you want more movies you want movies that just aren't necessarily all cut from the same stone so how did it feel to, to win that the camera image award I mean, that, that, that's that a big was deal. bonkers man that was the best thing ever because i'd never been to camera image Partly because Todd kept me busy as well as a couple other filmmakers. I just was never available, and I always wanted to go. But truthfully, it was also like I would have always just gone as a cinematographer and as a fan. But I, my movies don't go to Camry Image, you know what I mean? They don't send cam- Hangover to Camry Image. So I was just excited that it was in competition and playing there. And so that was thrilling enough and to like be up against like really good competition and good movies. Um, and to meet all the other fellow cinematographers, winning wasn't even a thought in my mind. And so it actually like stunned me when we won the audience award because I was like, oh, shit, I didn't expect this. And then the bigger thing, the, the, the Golden Frog was also like, yeah, it was amazing. It was amazing. Now, there's been a lot of back and forth in the press between Todd Phillips and some of the trades about, is, is there a sequel in the works? Do you guys have any plans? Have you been talking about it, anything like that? I can tell you for sure. I have not talked to Todd about it. I don't. I don't sort of. There's no reason to have that discussion. My feeling is, will it probably happen? My gut says yes, and I say that only because I think the experience that Todd and we all did, but I think the experience that Todd and Joaquin had making this movie together, and certainly Joaquin playing this character, was I think better than even he expected. I genuinely know and 
know from like making the movie with him that he he loved the experience and so i think for him it's like it's not going to feel like a sellout if we just keep making something that feels like that experience and if you can do it in a way that's like godfather 2 and not some other sequel that's not as good you know uh <laughs> plenty of them uh uh, anyway, it's like where it doesn't feel like you're just going after dollars, then I think it'll happen. Uh, I understand you, you just sort of worked with The Rock on, on Jungle Cruise a little bit, right? A little bit on and, some reshoots. Right, and, and, uh, and so you're going to be working with him on Black Adam now. Yeah. Can you say anything about you know how that might compare to, to this DC movie? No, I, I, it literally, I mostly can't because I'm so early in it. I, okay. I would if I... It, not because of some NDA or anything. I think... It's our goal is I worked with John McCollette, Sarah on that, on the reshoots and we got along and then they asked me, would I be interested in this? And one of my interests about it is to continue to sort of, and we've talked about it with Dwayne and obviously with JAMA and even DC is like, can we continue to sort of reshape what a comic book movie is and not necessarily like, yes, of course you want it to be entertaining and make, it has to make a decent amount of money. So it can't, it can't live in such a fringe place that it, it, it you know, doesn't, doesn't bring people in. But can we do something inventive? And so that's the goal, is to continue to try to do something a bit inventive with it. And you directed a film, Father Figures. Do you, do you have any plans to go back to directing? Are you happy where you are as, you know, as a cinematographer? I love shooting. I love directing. It's just when a movie doesn't do as well as you hope, it makes making a second... Here's the clue. If you want to direct a movie, make a hit. You can then make like three or four bombs after that. But start with a hit. It really makes things easier. Uh, so that's the only thing keeping me on the sidelines. But I will say, and I'm definitely looking to direct again for sure, but I've always loved shooting, and I was never one of those people that when I went and set out to direct that I wanted to sort of cut that part of myself off. I always felt like it was unfair to go like, wait, I can't shoot just because I directed a movie? And uh, I always felt like Ben Affleck got to act again after directing movies. And he, in fact, I think made him a better actor in places. And so I feel like it made me a better DP. And actually, when I came back after doing Father Figures, both with Godzilla and Joker, I felt like I was re-inspired to like, be more courageous and try things. And I felt like I was actually a better service to the director because I now had a much better empathy for everything they've gone through. But I definitely want to try it again. I just got to find somebody who stupid enough to give me a chance again. No, I'm just kidding. All right, and for, for my last question, uh, tomorrow's December 4th. Do you know what happens two months from tomorrow? Uh, no. It's Jan It's two months? February 4th? That's my birthday. Yes, it is. Your 50th. Oh, yeah. There you your go. Your 50th birthday. Hey, so, we're so, not in Hollywood. You're not supposed to tell people that. <laughs> so as you prepare to my turn half 50, century. can you reflect on, on, on this journey through this crazy town? Well, I've always, in, in, all through all of it, I've always loved doing what I do. Like, I, I think I don't really remember the sort of hard times, except lovingly and fondly, in spite of the fact that they were tough at times, you know. Um, when I was 30, it was a year in which I stopped. I said, I'm not going to do any camera assisting. I'm not going to operate. I'm just going to shoot. And I literally didn't work the entire year. I made one movie called Kissing Jessica Stein, which turned out to actually be helpful. 
but I made $7,000 on the movie and I was already married. Like I was a married man and I made $7,000 and didn't work most of the whole year. So it was hard, but it never felt that bad because it was only the only goal I wanted to do was to do this. So every, when I look back, I just feel like it's, it's every part of the step has been really fun and I love doing what I do, even when it's like when I'm crabby and, and yelling at people they they should know I really love it because I t- do sometimes yell at people, but uh, but it's a it's the greatest job in the world because every day you get an opportunity to create something, and maybe you can create something that can can entertain people and 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 be a memory of theirs in some way or an image or something that sustains time. So I'm just excited for the next fifty. Yeah, we have to cut it there, unfortunately. Uh, thank you to Arclight. Thank you to Larry Scherer. Thank you for coming. Appreciate if, it. If you're a voter, consider Joker this season. If you had a good time tonight, make sure you tweet at Warner Brothers. We'd love to do more of these screenings with Collider. Thank you, everybody, for coming. Thanks, make sure guys. to validate your parking. Napa know-how. Get all the quality parts you need at your locally owned Napa. Because right now, when you order from Napa Online, you can pick up curbside at your local store in just 30 minutes. Or get your order delivered direct to your door with free one-day shipping and over 160,000 quality parts when you spend $35 or more. Quality parts delivered quickly and safely. That's Napa Know-How. Napa Know-How. At participating stores, standard ground shipping and exclusions apply. Stay little chico, pit bull, Mr. 305, better said Mr. Worldwide, and I'm here to tell you about my new podcast, From Negative to Positive, brought to you by my friends over at State Farm. I believe that to have success, you got to play the game, so that the game doesn't play you. You know, the biggest risk you take is not taking one. It's very important that you make sure that you make the most out of your money, especially when it comes to insurance. State Farm offers surprisingly great rates. They have great agents standing by helping you personalize your coverage. All this is backed up by award-winning, easy-to-use technology. It's a great price with an even greater service. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. 